Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. This is our second interview with Mitchell Hora. Our first one was on the details of regenerative agriculture and all the nuances of cover crops and no-till and biomes and <laughs> earthworms and you know water retention and all the science that's really behind modern farming, which I find fascinating. Yeah. When, when you actually get out into a field day with um, Mitchell or Mitchell's dad and you walk through the, the fields and see what they're doing in agriculture, it's amazing. And it's the way of the future and it's the only way as humans we'll have sustainability in agriculture because the, the till and just bombarding the earth with billions of pounds of nitrogen is not sustainable. So we've been doing it for generations and yeah. now it's time to change. So um, this episode, we're gonna focus on Mitchell's journey mm -hmm. as a entrepreneur with Continuum Ag. Yeah. In, in the prior episode, he talked about his childhood entrepreneurship <laughs> as a four-year-old starting out and um, um, so I think this is going to be exciting because he's learned a lot over the last uh, seven and a half years or so. So then um, I hope to inspire our audience to try to build new things and also learn some from some of Mitchell's lessons. So I, I think, um, you know, from you, you can might kind of summarize what your mission is yeah. and um, we can talk about the key lessons learned along the way and now what your key you know your three or four major initiatives are and we'll, we'll talk about some of the issues with staffing yeah and getting the right people in the right places and you know empowering people and holding them accountable and being a ceo and letting go yeah. trying to let go yeah trying <laughs> so, to so we'll, trying we'll, to. i just asked you about five questions so i'm gonna no, no, it's talk. the um kind of tee it up and especially on the entrepreneurship piece again i'm an entrepreneur for sure um and i know my passion is ag and my niche is ag and i've grown up knowing nothing but ag and uh my first word as a baby was corn <laughs> so like if it's not my destiny i don't know what is <laughs> you're walking around the house corn corn yeah yeah so um but uh, so Continuum Ag is my main company. We're going to talk about that. But um, I've got a farm. I'm seventh generation on my family's farm. And my personal farm entity is called MT Hora Farms. Uh, so I've got that. Um, we do podcasting and stuff like that. I'm not necessarily, it's not its own business, but it's a big endeavor that I've got podcasting and speaking. Um, I own a, just a building holding company that we bought a, a commercial building for my wife's company, which is a dance company, um, a dance studio for for two to eighteen year olds for the most part, down in Fairfield, Iowa. So we've got a, the dance company, and uh, um, there I've got a different holding company controls my interest in Continuum Mag, and then a bunch of other things, and we're working on lots of different stuff. Okay. But um, Continuum Ag, I'm technically the founder and CEO, but really my role is visionary. And um, we've been very much using the EOS system to build, to build systems in the company and to have processes and a, a system to go off of. So EOS is the Entrepreneur Operating System. Um, it was developed... Uh, based on a book called Traction, and it has a, an online platform that we utilize. We do annual, quarterly, and weekly goal setting. We track metrics on a weekly basis. We track milestones that go towards our quarterly and our annual goals, and really just trying to have a system to building the company. Continuum Ag today is 25 employees, and uh, that's spread across a couple different countries and multiple states. So in order to manage all this and keep everyone going in the right direction, we gotta have systems 
and processes, and I've got to help to provide the vision. And my COO, Brad, is the integrator that helps to make sure it all gets done. <laughs> so Brad's Brad's been with you eighteen months, maybe a no, year. Yeah, two years. Two, two years, years already. Wow. So <clears throat> when Brad came in two years ago, so we're looking somewhere early two thousand and twenty. Yeah. You were still somewhat right. undisciplined in terms of processes, if I if I recall correctly. Very so, much. Tell us how how you with a process operating guy, how you orchestrated that and how you worked together yeah. to guide him through creating the EOS objectives and key yeah. results and, and, you know, and build the metrics to get the team, the 25 people focused. Because two years ago, I, I'm thinking you had five, six people maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I remember. Besides like some of the software folks and all that. So, and actually now that I'm thinking about it, I think Brad actually came on as a contractor in late 21 like okay. late summer of 2021 came on full time um, in right at the first of this year, first of 2020. So he's really been full time less than a year. Right, less than a year, right? Basically, right out of a year. So he's been there since then, and um, and Brad came in as the COO and like I said, that integrator kind of role. And Brad does have experience in entrepreneurial companies, in building and exiting from companies, and is just a math processes guy he's a excel spreadsheets and a linear type of thinking guy which is great for a clo <laughs> he's a get it done get it done in the process track the metrics learn from the data um, great for that role it's perfect spot for him and uh, brad's a farmer as well and uh, most of my team is uh, either grew up on family farms or their families are directly involved in farming. But um, but yeah, so basically being able to utilize these folks that can help to figure out processes and systems. And what we've really had to learn better about is setting the right goals, setting real, attainable, smart goals, mm -hmm. and then reverse engineering those goals to put together milestones and determine what is it going to take to make sure that we get the goals done and keep things on track and... And uh, we don't always do it perfect every time, for sure, but we've gotten significantly better. And, and actually, in our year, when we set our annual goals a year ago, we've actually been able to really nail them, which is very exciting to see uh, that the things that we said that we were going to get accomplished in this 2022 year, we got accomplished, which is really great. So in prior years, the prior six years, did you even have annual goals? Did you we know did. what you wanted so, to do? Or were you just chasing a dream and trying to figure out what that dream was? We, we were chasing dreams. We had the goals. We had the goals put together. Okay. But we just didn't have good processes and systems to actually attain the goals. We knew what we wanted to get done. We had ambition to get these things done. Or at least I said, hey, here's what we want to do. But there wasn't any follow through and any processes to get it done. So from the very beginning, the good thing that I did do when I started hiring employees was I found the EOS program. And the story on that was, so I graduated from Iowa State in the spring of 2017. Already had the company up and going, but I was a one-man show. Um, I, my younger brother was in high school and you know he got you know, strong-armed into helping me and, <laughs> and that was it, you know. And, and, uh, but it was a small consulting company and no, no big deal. We, uh, I was in a peer group of sorts through a, through a group called EO. EO is the Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a global initiative, lots and lots of chapters globally. Um, and to be an EO member, you have to be a business owner with a business doing at least a million dollars a year in annual revenue. Really, really cool organization. In 2017, I got recruited into kind of their accelerator program. At the time, it was called the EO Fellows Program uh -huh. because I knew some of my buddies that were that I'd ran in the same circles with at Iowa State and such. They were in the program. They recruited me in, and, uh, and that's where I got connected with one of the guest speakers at one of the meetings was a guy that did this EOS program, and I said, I need to figure out working with this guy and making sure that we've got some systems here. If I'm going to hire on employees, I knew that I needed to do it with some structure. The problem was we started in the EOS program and 
the I remember the first day that we were out and uh, did our first meeting with the whole team. It was my one guy's first day on the job, and my gal uh, was still at Iowa State, wasn't even a full-time employee yet, so she technically hadn't even started, and that was our first EOS like meeting and annual planning meeting was our first day on the job. <laughs> so I didn't have any real vision put together. We didn't have enough data to have processes and metrics and stuff. <clears throat> and um, and what I needed to have done was figure out, you know, the, what are we selling? What's the the metrics behind it? What's the process and how we get it done? And uh, and I knew how to do it, and I was making pretty decent money actually. I made a I made pretty good money in that first year of uh, coming out of Iowa State because all I did the whole time was just sell, 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 you know, and I was pretty decent at it and it was a cool new thing and I was getting a lot of my uh, customers on board people that so you were known selling for agronomy time. services selling just point. soil sampling agronomy services but it was a soil health sampling thing and it was different and new and intriguing and uh, and we were just going like crazy and um, and I knew that I needed more help to get it done my first full-time hire was to help do marketing so I'm a marketing-minded person and knew, okay, we need some marketing people to help to scale this thing all up. And, uh, and, and I hired an agronomist as well. Um, and I thought, that the agro- I thought that the marketing was going to help with sales and I thought the agronomist was going to be able to go and be kind of a hunter-gatherer and go get some more sales as well. And uh, that is not the didn't case didn't work at so well. No, no, no. But the problem was he didn't necessarily know what he was selling. and We didn't have the... Oh, we help product. farmers make $100 an acre in reducing their inputs. And and uh, we didn't have those case studies. We didn't have the systems put together. We didn't have a process to show a farmer, here's what we're selling you. I could talk about it and I could get them to write me a check because I would just, I knew them already and they had enough trust in me and they were intrigued and they said, yeah, sure, we'll help you out and get you going and, and be involved in this. It looks cool. Um, but other people can't necessarily do that the same way that the founder can do it. So really needed to build processes and systems. We've been able to get that dialed in much more. I still think we have plenty far to go, but now we know that it's a much more well-oiled machine and, and I can be out on the road and I can be out doing things and, and you know work will still get done and value will still be created without me having to be part of the work done let's talk a little bit about the evolution of the innovation of your product services because i think you've gone through a series of dozens of small steps on yeah what your product service offering is going to be and you, you keep trying things and you learn but it's a quick evolution of yeah. you try things you put them out there and tell us about that process yeah. and you know kind of where it's taken you and what the key learnings were along the way yeah at the beginning i started the company selling this agronomic tool called the haney soil health test and the only disruption to it was a small disruption and it was a service company not supposed to be this big disruptive technology company all it was was that usually farmers collect some soil from their agronomist Mm -hmm. at the ag retail location that sells them the inputs the ag retail uh the ag retailer typically comes out and pulls soil samples these soil samples are done in a linear grid pattern and they're uh, they're sent to a lab and they do a traditional chemical analysis on the data and then the ag retailer gets that data back and tells you here's how much fertilizer you need and they spread it and they you just get a bill we said let's use zones to evaluate the spatial variability of the field and utilize um, at that point it wasn't machine learning yet it was just looking at the field variability and, uh, and let's use this Haney soil health test to not only look at chemistry, but also look at biology and have a little bit of a niche. That was my, that was my differentiator. And, uh, and I was trying to, de- to, to deliver that service back to the grower and uh, writing very long email reports and, and utilizing an Excel spreadsheet and some basic analytic tools to deliver the product. It took a lot of time um, one farmer to do their analysis and to write the recommendation to all this. I mean, 
if you could get two farmers done in a day, that'd be probably pretty good. That was the sampling and the reports and that everything? That was just the reports and all just that. Just the reports. Like, um, I suppose with sampling and stuff too, I mean, sampling, the speed has gotten a little bit better, but for the most part, it's, um, you know, usually around 100 acres per hour is kind of what one sampler can get done um, in a typical Iowa geography. Mm-hmm. But I would take a lot of times on the analytics. And I was the only one that knew how to read these reports and how to create some value off of it. But I was delivering the value in a written email for the most part. Which they weren't so interested in. Which they weren't interested in. They didn't want to read it. It was still so complex and so much data. And it was hard for them to follow what I was trying to say. Right. And they were looking at the data just as an Excel file. So I knew we needed to deliver a better system and there was not existing technology today to be able to deliver these reports and we were still scaling and growing the company and had a lot of data and a lot of interest in this space and uh and i got connected with a software developer um through actually through one of my employees now thinking about it so one of my employees at the time his it was like his wife's or i guess his girlfriend at the time i think his girlfriend's dad knows this guy who's a software developer Uh kind of thing. And I got connected with that guy. He helped me to start building some software completely from scratch. Started it as a different company at the time. Was that Kay? Nope. This guy's name was Seth. Oh, okay. So Seth was the, uh, was the guy and, uh, from Iowa. And, um, so Seth helped basically building a database type of system and some basic data analytics and, and tools and no mapping to it, no visual. And, um, but, but that's when I started looking down, uh, raising some venture capital, started a new company. It was called soil reporting and management LLC mm-hmm. that was going to own the software and continuum ag was going to be the service company, consulting company. The software was going to be over here. And I started a new company called Continuum Enterprises that was going to own my shares in each one of them. Okay. So two customer-facing companies, one holding company that owned my my interest, and then I'd bring in an investor that could invest in the software company. Because the plan at that point was build up a software solution and maybe get it acquired or spin it off or whatever, and then I'd just do consulting again after that. Because, again, at this point, I thought I was just going to do consulting for forever and now okay yeah we can build up software and build a database system but probably you know do the entrepreneurial route get investors and sell that thing and be done well very quickly learned that having these two companies that was very hard to differentiate between what's what it's very hard to know where does revenue go where does payroll come out of how do taxes work what is the investor investing in it was a it was a mess and uh it wasn't too long after that that you and i first met you saw one of my initial pitches because of some family you know a um, some friends and and business colleagues down in southeast iowa and i don't even know what i was pitching at the beginning and you didn't know what i was pitching and nobody knew what i was pitching at the beginning because it was such a mess but I was intrigued, and we got together and actually visioned an, another company that we're not going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, today. that's a different thing. So the the opportunities in ag, there is opportunities there, but now we've been able to figure out that Continuum Ag um, and our our soft our solution has to be a sim- more simplified business model, and I still have to continue to really simplify things because I try I use too much. Um, fancy terminology and trying to utilize these big words and make it sound all techy and fancy uh-huh. and it just it convolutes things and I should simplify it. And um, and at one point we were saying, you know, we're you know, we've we've really been pushed on we're the catalyst for sustainable agriculture and all this stuff. Really our tagline today is we are soil health simplified. Which is so much better. It's so I much mean, easier. So, so health simplified. Yeah, well, I mean, that's simple you've come a long, a long way. So how, when did AI and machine learning start to come yeah. into the, the whole product offering? Yep, so I hired Seth um, to help build software. He brought in a AI, or it's not an AI, a, U, a UI, UX, so the user interface and a design gal named Joni. 
Joni's a software designer from out in LA, zero connection to agriculture whatsoever, but she is, I call her a mind reader. She can take what I'm thinking and how I want to kind of visualize stuff when I, I'm not a software designer. I turn it into code. <laughs> and no, she turns it into the visuals oh. and then the developers can turn it into code mm. and make it real. But because she's from outside of agriculture, we've designed a system that doesn't necessarily look like all the other ag softwares, which is what would have happened if we would have hired people from ag because how I was thinking about laying out the software would have looked like any other ag software. So does Joni's visualization give the farmers better insight and easier easy. ability to understand it? Yeah, it's just easier, more simplified, more techie, more modern, and uh, just easier to understand because she's coming from outside of ag and she's like just click here click here done like make it really simple um we uh at, at some point there finally got my business partner and investor mike mm -hmm. on board and he wrote me my first investor check which didn't come in till late 2019 so from 2015 through 2019 i built all this with zero investor money zero outside capital i had some uh some money coming from the bank just a line of credit at the bank and and revenue that was it and it was so um, you had to generate cash to fund the ongoing product development including so, software development everything all coming from revenue and and developing cash Mike came in with some small investment dollars we went through a ag tech accelerator program called ag launch and upon graduation of that um, tapped into some additional investment dollars about a year at, so that would have been early 2020 we launched the software um, so let's let's pause for a second yeah and talk about you know the venture capitalists and these these accelerators provide tremendous value and insight if you're willing to do the work so yeah. tell us where you started with ag launch and the process they took you through and what you kind of learned from that experience yeah so ag launch was really really great and definitely you know a group that i still work very closely with ag launch is a nonprofit ag accelerator based in memphis tennessee and um, I got connected through with Ag Launch because after graduating, I went through that EO Fellows Program. Mm -hmm. And then I forget how I got connected with Spencer. And you've met Spencer, Spencer right. Stensrud. And uh, the Ag Ventures Alliance is now one of our investors as well. And Spencer's a farmer from Northern Iowa. And Spencer got me in a, uh, a different program through the Papa John Centers. So before I did Ag Launch, I went through Papa John Venture School up in Mason City because I wanted to connect with Spencer because I was chasing investment oh, dollars. Oh, so instead of doing it in Iowa City, you did it in, in Mason City. For proximity to Spencer. For proximity to Spencer because yeah. Spencer was going to be part of my mentor and stuff. The Papa John Venture School program is really great, and I know you've been involved in some of that. I think it's an awesome program for companies that are just getting started that are a basic idea concept we were by far the furthest along in mm -hmm. the in the cohort we were actually making money we we had a, a, had a business. business yeah i was by far the furthest <clears throat> furthest along and i did it up in mason city driving two and a half hours one way twice a, or once a week for like eight weeks and it was on tuesdays i remember i would i would drive my pickup from Washington, Iowa to Mason City, two and a half hours one way, do the couple hour course and then drive home after and get home at midnight or so. And uh, did that for eight weeks straight. But because of going through that, we were able to hone in on our system a little bit and hone in on our pitch and all that and try to communicate where people could understand what the heck am I talking about right. with all this crap. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and Spencer connected me with the Ag Launch program we went through that. Um, it was a, it's a five-week in-person uh, program in Memphis. So you were sequestrated for five weeks in yeah. Memphis where you're showing up every day in the morning and yeah. then leaving late at night and you worked on your business plan. In Memphis. And oh, yeah. Yep. So I drove down there on Sunday evenings and I was living with my buddy Christoph, who is also now on my advisory board. But Christoph is a founder at Nori, one of the, carbon, one of the original carbon companies. And uh, Krista and Nori and Continuum Ag went through the program together for a very strategic reasoning. And we're both very early at the time. 
And Christoph and I actually lived together while we were in Memphis and rented like an Airbnb together. Mm -hmm. um, it was a nasty place, but it worked great. You know, the cheapest place we could find. <laughs> and, uh, and it was awesome because we were just working the whole time anyway. It didn't matter. But Memphis is about eight-hour drive for me. So I would drive down there on Sunday afternoons, work you know, down there the whole time. And we'd have events in the evenings and stuff. I mean, it was, yeah, early morning till well after dark all day, every day. So what was the school. nature of the work you did over this five and a half weeks? What? So it was uh, it was business planning, pitching, like pitch preparation. It was all about preparing for investors for the most part. So you did a complete business plan. You did the, uh, the business case, the product offering, yep. the financials, the yep. forecast, the, the right. capital requirements, the, right. you know, what you need to support cash flow. That's right. Yep, yep. So it's all about getting ready for business pitch and stuff. And, uh, but then the, because at the end of the accelerator is a pitch event to the investors and all that. And, uh, and all of the company, the, to be selected to go through Ag Launch, there's a farmer panel that selects the companies that go through Ag Launch. And upon graduating from Ag Launch, the nonprofit accelerator, Ag Launch themselves, they get a safe note in the company. It's one of the investment. Uh, documents or an investment vehicle so they get a safe note of investment. Is that like a convertible note that converts like convertible to equity? Note. Exactly. The difference between a safe and a convertible is a convertible note has a an interest rate and a maturity date on mm -hmm. it. A safe note doesn't. A safe note just has a cap and whenever it converts. When you get there and you trigger it then it. That's right. It's triggered based on the amount of money that you raise or an exit or whatever, um, but it's just it's just a little more simplified. Well, I mean, at that point in time, what was your target raise? What were you thinking that you needed in capital once you finished the five and a half weeks? Didn't even necessarily have one at that point. Well, I guess we at that point we raised about a quarter million. So, so the, at the, the end of the program, you raised a quarter of a million. Quarter million. Yep. So quarter million dollars. And then um, about a year later, we raised about a half a million dollars on convertible notes. So at that point, what was the allocation of the investment of the quarter million? What were you, you going to use it for? It was all on software stuff. For so the it was all product part. development? All product there development. There was no operations funding. It was all... No, um, it might have been you know, within like the agronomy stuff. But for the most part, agronomy, operations, people, this kind of stuff... I had the revenue coming in from my legacy business. So legacy the business was business. cash flowing. So this oh, was yeah. just to fund the development of the software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just to to fund the software. And it's basically what we still do today. You know, we've got we've continued to significantly grow our revenue, and uh, so the if if I wasn't building software, wasn't spending ongoing money on building software, we'd have a very profitable company right now, mm -hmm. as I sit here today. But we still want to keep building more. Well, you mean your solutions. cash? Your cash flow from operations is positive. The, yeah. the product development oh, sucks up the cash. So oh, yeah. you have a profitable business, then you have a development yeah. activity oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah. Uh, do you capitalize all those development costs? Does it go on your balance sheet? Um. Or do you just expense it? It's just expenses for right now. Now we are tracking, of course, everything within the value, and but we're still an early state, early enough stage company that we don't necessarily say we are worth X dollars per share. You know, we we haven't quite gotten to that yet. Um, we are looking at doing that here very soon by doing an actually priced equity investment raise of somewhere between two and a half to five million dollars. Raise that now. So again. you raised two fifty. Then a year later, you raised five hundred. And these were all just pre. I mean, so yeah. So the first we called like a pre-seed, and mm -hmm. then like a bridge round, and mm -hmm. uh, so now we're calling it more like a seed series round. A. This is more like a seed. It's kind of a late seed. So you're not to a, a series A yet. Well, so it's it, all this is just terminology of how well, do you right, communicate because it you're, with you, you, you're on investors. your third right, right. Well, yeah. actually, your fourth because you had your initial investor, yeah. two fifty, five hundred thousand. Now right. you're looking for two to five million. That's right. That's right. So the uh, but this round because the use of funds is still mostly product development and sales and marketing and legal <clears> stuff and things like that. Because the use of funds is towards those things, I call it a late seed round. Versus a Series A would be all the salespeople and major scale up and major mm -hmm. go to market, which 
we, we still have some of that, but because we're still building some product and stuff, um, slightly earlier stage than just a Series A. So, um, but basically equity round and that'll clean up everything. We're able to utilize some state non-dilutive, uh, some state funding and stuff as well and just tap into a variety of different initiatives. But yeah, working with lots of different investors out there. The space as we sit today has very much slowed down. It's very odd talking with investors today. Um, a ton of interest in the sustainability space at least. And that's what's very much keeping us relevant. I mean, is but, this slowed down because of the economic uncertainty and the interest rates and yeah. the war in Ukraine and just all of the chaos yeah. in the world and yeah. people yeah. are just more cautious and that's right. trying to sit on cash? That's right. Yep. So just sitting on cash and um, the big thing that we be that we keep hearing from investors as we sit today is, yeah, very interesting, you know, want to do something in this space, let us know when you get a term sheet put together and then we can talk some more. Well, that term sheet is basically, you know, um, a, comes from a lead investor who puts a valuation on the company and is able to say, yep, your company is worth whatever, say, you know, 25 million. Right. Your company's worth $25 million. We will put in X amount of money or whatever into that company. And after we put in our money, the company's going to be worth now the initial amount plus the money that we just put in. That's the new valuation. And we have whatever percentage right. based on that valuation. And uh, getting a company to take the lead when there's all this uncertainty and when we're in a weird, like, kind of like late seed, early A. Um, and because of how much we're raising, um, we're in a, another weird in-between kind of spot. So been interesting to navigate and um, looks like you know we'll be able to have stuff. Are you still in the spot where the, year, but. the operating cash flow continues to fund it? So mm-hmm. if you just don't do the raise, then you just slow down the development of the software. Is that yeah, kind of how that looks? That's basically how it is. You know, we could uh, we could continue to just kind of bring on follow-on investment as well from the investors that we already have, not mm-hmm. dilute myself any more than what I have to, mm-hmm. not bring on other folks onto the cap table, and at that point not have to bring anyone else onto the into a board seat either. So, because my board today is still just me and Mike, my angel investor. That's it. Yep. Our cap table and all of our systems is extremely clean. So, just so our audience understands, you have a board of directors, which are the legal directors, yep. which are you and Mike. The shareholders. Then you have a, a fairly extensive advisory board of Correct. experts Correct. that brings in all kinds of advice. And I know when we get together, ideas. And yeah. you might take a minute and talk about the, the importance of your advisory board in helping yep. you as an yep. entrepreneur grow and learn yeah. and their proximity and connections and how, how has that helped you Mitchell? Yeah, we talked about it a little bit in the previous episode here, but, but yeah, so you've been able to, to be part of that advisory board and it's a big thing that I've talked a lot about and, and I have it now as one of my rocks for this quarter and one of my actual written goals that I have to now create some structure and some systems within the advisory board and the rest of my department meetings and stuff like that. So uh, the it, because of how we funded the company, that it's safe notes and convertible notes, the investors that we brought in, except for Mike, my original angel investor, everyone else's shares in the company are not actual shares. They're future shares in the company. They're not actually votes. They're not actually common stock shares in the company. So you, you still have a lot of freedom, whereas if you brought in a venture capitalist yeah. five years ago, you would own significantly less and they Correct. would be Correct. controlling a lot of decisions. So I control all the actual vote today. I have complete autonomy in terms of the votes and in terms of the shares of the company to do whatever I want to do. Now, I consult with Mike, who owns a significant portion and does have a vote, but I, mean, I he has a vote, but he, um, you can override. He just doesn't have enough votes, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, um, but and we work very well together. Mike is a very experienced entrepreneur and somebody that I trust extremely within this. But, um, but in order to get other folks that are have a, a solid interest and to try to create a little bit more acting like a bigger company, I put together an advisory board with some of those other investment groups and with other um, just supporters. Um, So 
folks that are involved in the technology, folks like you from the business side. Um, and what, there's maybe nine or 10 people now on that. So it's a little bit big, but um, that's why I need to create better structure to it, have a little bit more systems so that it can be smooth and effective. And um, and I, it's one of the things I'm worst that I'm, one of the things that I am worst at is asking for advice and, or not asking for advice, but asking for help and utilizing advisors and helpers around me because as a, and I think it's part of my, is, is that because you're so busy, you don't even have time to pause and think that's part or? of it because I'm running and gunning so hard and fast that I just make the decision or I don't make a decision that it never gets made, which is the problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think it's also just part of my farmer mentality of farmers. We're used to just doing our own thing and, and figuring you out, figure it and out. Doing it. Yeah, yeah. There's nobody else that's going to do it. So you got to do it yourself and figure it out, which is bad as a leader that I need to delegate. I need to utilize resources around me, especially for folks that have said, hey, I want to help you. And I need to let them help me. Um, but it's been one of the biggest barriers. And, and in order to force me to do it, I have to put these meetings on the calendar to force it to happen. When we have the meetings, there's great conversation. It's always amazing. And and they're great connectors because they introduce you to people. Yeah. And I I think, um, you know, this, this is part of the evolution of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Some never make it. They refuse to bring on advisory board members. And you've got a big one with nine people and you've got, some real horsepower on that board and yeah. all you have to do is pick up the phone and ask them and they'll that's you right know, you know you and i talk yeah you know it goes in spurts depending on where yeah. you want to yeah. raise and what yeah. the next strategy yeah. is yeah. but yeah. um you know i think and that's how you, it's you can get a lot them. more from leveraging it yeah and um you know one of the things and we haven't had this conversation yet but we can start it now um at some point you're an, you're an entrepreneur right now, but you're an, an operator and you make mm. 80, 90% of the decisions and yeah. your, your arms are rolled up and you're in the midst of everything. Yeah. At some point, when you get more strategic and you can start thinking of yourself as an owner investor instead mm. of an owner operator, yeah. then you start thinking about, okay, here's the strategy, here's the structure, and here's how I can get the good people in so I can be the visionary. That's right. I can go out and do the pitches. That's right. I can raise the next $5 million because when you get in front of audiences, you do great. Yeah. Tell our audience about your recent experience in Amsterdam where you yeah, showed yeah. up in another continent. <laughs> yeah. And t- tell us what that was and yeah. tell us what you walked away with. Yeah, yeah. So I'll get into that story. But, but first, on what you were just saying, in terms of settling into the CEO role is the biggest thing that I really need to do and need help on and need to work on very diligently because I've got a lot of crap going on. And Continuum Ag is one company my farm, my family farm, my, my wife's business is really crazy. We've got other business ventures. We've got other things. There's a lot going on. And if I'm not going to fully be just the CEO, and if I'm going to be in as an operator and all these things, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to attain the goals. It's not going to work correctly. People are going to get burned out. People aren't going to be able to go. And, uh, and it's just not going to work correctly. So that's the biggest thing that I need to do is just be the CEO to work for my employees, not try to be the one that's making all the decisions and all that, just letting things work and putting the right people in the right place to succeed. Well, you know so, what you need, Mitchell? You, you need a coach. Yeah. I mean, Eric Smith at Google, Yeah. Um, uh, Steve Jobs at yeah. Apple, they had coaches. Yeah. They had a coach. They, had, they each had one coach. They had mm. the same coach. Mm. But, um, you know, everyone needs a coach. Yeah. And at some point, you need a kick in the ass, and you kind of say, okay, Mitchell, here's where you are, here's what you need to do, and, you know, kind of, you know, the nice thing about a coach is they help you define where you should, where you want to focus. I mean, they don't do it, they help you, and they help you see options. Then a coach holds you accountable to do it. So, I mean, um, you know, an advisor and a consultant, I mean, they give you advice and they try to teach you. A coach is more like a coach of a basketball team you're you're actually coaching or you're holding the ceo accountable to build their team get the right people in place to make sure you have the goals because if you have 
all of your direct reports yeah. with clear objectives and key deliverables and are measurable, yeah. your organization is going to get a lot more done. That's right. And, you know, in this day and age, people want to be part of something that has a vision and a purpose yeah. and impacting a billion acres and a million farmers is a big vision. Yeah. But they want to know what you want them to do and how you're going to hold them accountable, then they want you to get the hell out of the way and yeah. let them yeah, do it. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, and that's part of the entrepreneurial evolution yeah. is to become, yeah. you know, a leader and you have to grow. I mean, yeah. you started when you were four as an entrepreneur yeah. in the lemonade stand, but, you know, it never stops. Yeah. And it's, it's what I know I really need to do. And what I've found in business is there's, there's not that many people who are visionaries and who think the way that I think and who can see things from the angle that like I see things, especially within the things that I know, you know, ag and stuff. But so I know that I need to do more and I need to be out of the way and not be a hindrance to the things getting done. And I need to be that CEO role and really go into that. And, and part of it back to the Amsterdam thing, like you were saying that this Amsterdam deal was we, we applied for a contest, a pitch competition, at a conference um, that was to be held in Amsterdam called the Regenerative Ag and Food Systems Summit. And was interested in this event because the, the lineup was really stacked. Um, but I mean, we, we were referred to apply for this program. Brad did all the work and we got chosen as one of the top five. And I was like, well, this looks like a pretty slick deal. I've never been to Europe before, and I work very closely with Rabobank, who happens to be headquartered in the Netherlands as well, not that far from Amsterdam, down the road in, in Utrecht. So I said, okay, let's utilize this conference as a way to get over there, spend a week of it, and really get a bunch of work done and such. So went all the way over to Amsterdam to do a five-minute business pitch, uh, we were one of five companies. We were the only U.S. company that was chosen uh, to the final five. And I gave a five-minute business pitch, answered some questions. The audience voted on who the winner would be, and we won. And um, now part of that I know as well that I, I'm i not just a visionary and want to be more of a leader, but I can talk pretty well you have I've, a got good story, so I've, I've got a story and i can be compelling so i know that in these things if when it's me up on stage versus everyone else i'm gonna win and, and that was actually this for the, seven years I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah your pitch hundreds of times oh, for f tons of times but also that was one of the pieces of feedback that uh that was given i i was the second one to give my pitch the first group uh was a an asian company that stood behind the podium and kind of gave their script and cool technology, but like it was a bad pitch. And uh, I uh, go, uh, hey, can I, I didn't want to stand behind a, a podium. I hate standing behind a podium because I'm, I'm a, I You like to wave your arms. All the time, me. yeah, I'm like going, you know, and I get too excited to just stand behind a podium. So I asked him for a, a handheld mic and I got the handheld mic and instead of standing on the podium off to the side, I got right out front and center on that stage, right out on the edge of it and was talking in these people's faces. So you were and, inspiring the audience with oh your yeah. vision. And yeah, your... the, uh, the comment that I'd heard was like, that was like the most American pitch ever of like just getting up there <laughs> like this is how it's going to be and like we got to go, you know, and I'm like, I love that. But um but so yeah, one the one the thing they're ha they're actually hosting the the event in Chicago uh, here in a couple months, um, so going to be attending there. Um, got a deal worked out to be a media partner and stuff on the conference. But um, but no, really good to be over there with these v VPs and bigwigs at some of the biggest ag and food companies in the world. Um, but to get a European spin on it was interesting. Let's, let's talk next a little bit about the collaborations and what you've learned through collaboration with the big industry players in ag and you know how you can leverage what you're doing with what they're doing to help accelerate the growth of your business. You, yeah. I mean, you don't have to talk about specific companies, but you can talk yeah. about general concepts of proximity and collaboration with the titans yeah. that can see the value in your vision and how you can help them and how you yeah. create shared value. So I think that's important to 
yep. entrepreneurs to sort that piece out? Yeah, so again, we are Soil Health Simplified. We deliver the how-to for a generative bag. So our end user is a farmer, and we're trying to help a million of them. There's not enough hours in a day for me to direct to help a million farmers. And even to build scalable software solutions, how are you gonna be disruptive enough to impact a million farmers? 20% of the global ag system. Not gonna happen from Washington, Iowa. Facebook is good, but ain't that good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so instead, we've gotta work with and build systems for the channel partners who already work with these million farmers who already have the networks that already have scale that already have brand awareness who have technical people legal people all this stuff and we can plug in through their channels to go and acquire customers better than us attempting to acquire a customer one by one so um, we've been able to fit into that especially because all these companies now have these sustainability initiatives carbon initiatives or whatever it may be and in order for them to meet their carbon reductions or look within their scope three of their supply chain which is the uh, the products basically going into their supply chain in order for them to decarbonize or improve the sustainable impact of that uh, they've got to help their farmers to improve and help their farmers to be more sustainable and they don't know how to do it they don't know regenerative ag. They don't know how to teach anybody. They don't know what the metrics are to quantify. So they're hiring us to show them how it's done. And we have a system and we have processes now and a software that can scale. And we say, here's how you do it. Here's the process. It's visual and here's how it's got to be done. You go and do this, 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 this checklist or whatever with your customer. We'll be the back end support. You're going to make some money on it. We're going to make some money on it. You're going to strengthen the relationship that you have with your customer, and we're going to utilize the metrics coming off of this to meet your sustainability goals. So uh, the opportunity within that is trillions of dollars. Uh, the global wealth um, has said that we've got to be carbon neutral by 2050, and in order to do it, you got to clean up food and ag, which is 24% of the global footprint. So if you're going to be carbon neutral, you've got to clean up your supply chain, and that starts with the farmer. And, but it costs money. It's going to take some time. And, uh, we, but we've got a business model to help companies to do it. So, um, but what will happen is that we'll get acquired. Um, and I believe what will happen in this space is that there will be a roll-up of technologies and companies like ours and, and some of those that we partner with that can bring some of the technology into one company, one consortium of companies that can deliver a more full package offering to corporates and to their farmer clients to uh, be able to really optimize these initiatives. So as an entrepreneur, one of your challenges is how much do you scale and leverage through your channel partners and grow the business in terms of timing of when you exit and become part of a bigger roll-up or consolidation, because yeah. the longer you wait, the more the value. Yeah. The longer you wait, I mean, there there could be some unknown risk, but yeah. you know, it's you know, it's timing, and you're you're obviously thinking about this. Yeah. Um, so as an entrepreneur, you got to capitalize on the opportunities yeah. when they walk through the door. So if yeah. someone offers you a fantastic price, yeah, you might sell next quarter. Yeah. If if they're not in the ballpark. You might, they might wait two or three years, but then they'll pay two or three times more. Hopefully. Yeah. Or somebody else will come and railroad us and we'll be gone. Yeah. So how do you, um, how do you look at competitors and leap yeah. technologies that could leap, leapfrog, leapfrog what you're doing? It yeah. could be a risk to your business model it's, and your plan. Yeah, it's been a really interesting deal. So at this point, there's not necessarily a direct competitor that I can point to and say, we've got to just beat them. And we got to watch out for them because they're the ones coming after us. I don't necessarily have that. Um, I've got groups that are kind of, you know, kind of doing some of the stuff that we do. Um, but basically, as we as we sit today, we are in a fairly unique spot and fairly ingrained in some of these initiatives. And in order to protect ourselves, I'm just trying to work with everybody. And by being with everybody, that's my moat. 
because I can't patent everything in software. I can't trade. I can't legally protect everything that we've got because it's it's software solutions. Um, so it's not patentable. It's not not legally protectable at that point. So my protection is by working with everybody and be so intertwined into their programs they can't do it without me. Yeah. Then you start building critical mass yeah. of acres in yeah. the system and in yeah. the database. So yeah. you know if you've got. 70% of all the acres that are yeah. in a regenerative program today, yeah. you're a leader. So now when you're, as your partners bring in more 10,000 acres here, 5,000 here, yeah. 40,000 there, yeah. your database grows. That's so right. that, That's you right. know, just being the market leader by itself. Yeah. So now we're looking at, you know, the get, need to get acquired at some point and be rolled into something so we can go beyond <clears> me and beyond, you know, what we're doing here in, in small town Iowa. But in the meantime... It, Acquiring those acres is slow, especially through these company programs, which are very slow because the company's got to develop their programs, then they got to go sell it to their farmers, they got to get them in. It takes a long, long time. It's not growing very quickly. 93% of farmers in the US are aware of these initiatives, like namely carbon initiatives. Right. 93% of farmers are aware of these initiatives. Less than 3% have enrolled in one of these initiatives. <laughs> So and not very many. They're not chomping at the how bit. Do you, so how do you accelerate or what accelerates the conversion of farmers into regenerative initiatives? What? Yeah. I mean, is it possible there will ever be a political mandate that says you have to do this? I think that's, I, I think that's actually a big threat to this because um, it, it, there is a possibility that it could happen. And regulation is definitely going to speed up or slow down these <clears throat> initiatives here. Um, right now, the regulation and the dollars coming from the federal government and state government are more so trying to enable free market to do stuff by means of grants and cost share dollars and trying to put money at it without mandating or anything. The key thing, though, that's really needed in my viewpoint is that we need to have better metrics and tools that can show farmers what is their score as it exists today. What I mean by that is today, farmer's score and the scoreboard is yield. And I can see my score when I harvest because it's on the monitor. Right. It's right here. And I can see it when I go across. And I can see the score. And I've got a pretty good idea of how to score points. So you see how many bushels of corn That's are coming bushels. out and going into the hopper. That's right. And the more bushels, the better my score, the more I get paid. Because I get paid based on bushels. Right. And I know that where I did this nitrogen rate versus this one, well, this one worked out better on the scoreboard I got more yield so I need to do more of that you know that kind of play until we can get to where we have a scoreboard and we show farmers how to create points for carbon or sustainability until we get to that point this is not going to happen does topsoil have that scoreboard or will it have that scoreboard that's what I'm working on big time so I was hoping to meet with my guy here today it looks like we're going to meet tomorrow or the next day or so that score, what I believe is going to happen here, is called carbon intensity. Corn today has a standard carbon intensity score of plus 35 grams of carbon equivalence per megajoule of energy. It's an ethanol standard. They do these kind of reporting stuff. Right. But today, they don't collect all the data, so they have to use the standard of plus 35. And any other industry can do it as well and convert it to their metric stuff that's not what matters but plus 35 is the thing to look at our farm is now the second farm in the state of iowa that i'm aware of at least to have our score we are minus 1.8 so the standard farm is plus 35 so if you don't measure you get assigned a value of plus 35, plus 35. and eventually you're going to held, be held accountable that's to right. do something with that that's right but whether the farm would be held accountable or the company's are going to be held accountable and next year in Europe they have to start reporting their scope 3 carbon emissions next year. We don't have we don't have that stuff here in the US. We don't report on our carbon emissions to the securities exchange. They've been talking about that, but today we don't. In Europe they do. So in Europe they have to start reporting not only their scope 1 and scope 2 emissions, their direct emissions, but also their scope 3, which is their supply chain. And that trickles down to the farmers. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have the real numbers, they have to use the standard of plus 35 or thereabout. And that's the number we'll use for today, plus 35. 
Our farm is minus 1.8, which in tonnage is about 1.8 tons per acre difference between those two. Between a minus 1.8 and a 35? And a plus 35. So in terms of 1.8 tons of carbon per acre. Per acre per year. Yep. Now that minus 1.8 carbon negative, that is including everything. That's my fertilizer, my fuel, my energy usage, my LP, my natural cycling, everything. And we're minus 1.8. So offsetting our own carbon footprint plus, plus a little extra. Yep. Huge opportunity. And what I'm getting at is get that number for every single farmer in America and show them that the better their score, the more they can get paid, they will do it. Well, especially if uh, a 35, a plus 35 at some point causes a great penalty and they're going to start charging you for your plus 35 because you're... you're And that's why I know that this will work. So so what's the timing on that in this country? Long time. Uh, I don't mean 10 years, 20 years? 10, 10 I think, is probably realistic um, before there's any kind of penalty and stuff. But what what will happen is, I don't know that has to be a mandated penalty, but what what I think the opportunity is, what I'm really pushing on, is get a farmer their number, like mine, minus 1.8. Now I can start shopping around and say, hey, I got 100,000 bushels of this corn that has a carbon intensity of minus 1.8. Does that mean anything to you? And do you, how much you want to pay me to have this corn that's minus 1.8? And you get that story, and you get to blend this minus 1.8 corn with all the rest of your corn that's plus 35. And now, I didn't solve all your problems, but now the weighted average of all that corn is now minus, or now plus 27. So It's not great, but it's better than the other guy when they go and sell So when Cargill buys it, do they get a carbon credit for the, the quality of the score with that corn that they buy no, or how does, right how does that credit eventually play into I think this is going to be a different path so today there's a carbon credit which is a new a new asset on its own right. and then there's the corn that goes over here that has no carbon measurement to it just yellow number two corn just like everybody else the carbon credit goes over here what I think will happen is that the number goes together not based on carbon credits, but based on science-based target The carbon footprint of that specific corn in the field that That's it came right. out of? That's right. So it's about lowering the carbon footprint of your supply chain and actually getting to being carbon negative or carbon neutral. So instead of Cargill now needing to go and buy carbon credits from somewhere, right. now they can do it within their supply chain. So it's carbon insetting and it's scope three target reporting. And the value here is when I sell that grain, the carbon goes with it and it's done. It's not, did my carbon go over there? Did my corn go over there? What's happened? And did it get double counted? It's just done. And also now it's directly incentivized in your supply chain to have all that. And also if Cargill is going to claim my carbon and my story, they have to make sure that I don't sell my carbon credit over here it's on my grain. They so need it if all in together. twenty years, Cargill has to be at a score of zero or less on corn. When they when they buy it and they know that you're a one a negative one point eight, that's a positive. Yep. If, you, if you're a five or ten or a thirty five, yeah. If you don't do it you're and you get assigned thirty five, one your corn's probably less marketable yeah. because you got a high score. You got a thirty five. That's right. So the people that start doing this are yeah. going to be on the leading edge. That's right. When, That's whenever this carbon plays out. That's why I love it. It's starting right now. So what? You know, the Department of Ag would have some in- incentives in my mind by saying if you want crop insurance, you have to have a carbon score and a regenerative ag program. If sure. you don't, we're not going to give you insurance, or so you're going sure. to pay twice as much because the risk of a crop failure when you use regenerative with this organic matter yeah. you know it holds water yeah <clears throat> the crop's going to survive when the one next door might not or yeah. you'll get 150 an acre versus nothing because yeah. of these practices that yeah. Yeah. i mean they could say you want insurance you do this and yeah. the farmer can decide and that way they're not mandated <laughs> yeah i think over time if the federal government really wanted to do something it would be in that route where they could say hey you've got to do xyz to be less of a risk 
to us if we're going to insure you. Um, that would absolutely be their play um, if they wanted to do something. But I think it's just it's still so institutionalized and stuff that fairly far away from doing that. Um, so instead, it's going to be just like this CI scoring and stuff where it's not going to be a penalty for the people that are still 35, whether it be you aren't doing very good practice or you don't have the data to create your score and you just have to use the default. The So in the meantime, it's going to be a premium for the folks who do have a good score and who do have the data to document it because there's not that much of that grain. So they're going to need that and people are going to want to buy that grain. They're still going to have to buy a lot of this plus 35 grain. And right now, they're probably not going to dock you because they still need the grain. They still need to buy the, the grain. Right. Because there's not enough of this low-carbon grain to off, to – they still need the corn. There's not enough corn out there. They still got to buy the corn. Whether it's good carbon intensity or not, they still need the corn. Until more and more people have low-carbon grain, it becomes the norm. The premium comes down because it's now just the standard – and hopefully these farmers, of course, are more resilient, more productive, more profitable on their own right. and don't need the premium as much anymore. It becomes a new standard and it's a new plateau. It's a new standard. Then the folks that can't meet that standard get docked, just like we do today. Today we sell yellow number two corn at 56 pound test weight at 15.5% moisture. And if you are anything worse than that, you get docked. You don't get a premium. For having great quality grain. <clears throat> you just don't get, get docked. docked. Yeah, you just don't get docked. So it's going to be the same thing in the future. But like I said, probably a solid 10 years before any dockage is well, Let me ask you this. If you have land that's got a score, a carbon intensity score, that you've had it for years, at some point does the land become more valuable because you have it, because you have a negative score versus someone else who does have, is a 35 because they don't, Probably. There's probably some opportunity for that. Um, or there, I could see them both ways. I could see where it's got that low CI score. It's really <laughs> functioning correctly, and therefore it's already set up for these premiums, and you're good to go. But maybe that poor ground is going to be available for, a di for other outside incentives to help it to be improved. And if you know how to take it from a plus 35 to a zero, you could be extra incentivized to help to convert that land to being better and utilize cost share dollars or utilize additional money to make that conversion. So I could see it being either way. Do you, do you ever see a day where the big, the big financial institutions that partner with the big farms um, start encouraging their customer base, their farmers to start doing these things because you know, they see the value and they, I mean the risk the risk, if you're not a regenerative farmer and, and rain and gets more scarce and there's less ground groundwater and you know maybe at some point the government says we're going to reduce our crop insurance and our subsidies, the risk for people that just do um, the old-fashioned farming of catastrophic failures goes way up. Yeah. And, you know, it, I mean, their partners yeah. um, may say that you know we're not willing to invest in this risk long term you need to because these practices are proven yeah and it's almost common sense yeah. why don't you get with the program it's just a long ways to uh, make that conversion i think because it's just such a small percentage of folks that are really doing that and have really you know enough proof and enough of those case studies to really be able to have that mm -hmm. and because today they need the corn from wherever oh like, well that's true they just need the grain <laughs> i mean how much the, of the world supply of corn has been impaired but in the Ukraine with Russia blowing everything no, up. No, it's not as much on the corn. I mean, it's wheat is what it's really impacted. Um, but on the corn side, it's not as big of a driver okay. there. But, I mean, it would be some, but it's just not... I don't know if that's what we're still seeing in the market or not. I, but I'm not an expert on that. But but I think overall, it's just going to end up being... there. There's... There is some initial talks about getting this carbon intensity scoring and stuff. I was just talking with a buddy that works for one of the grain buy-in companies, one of the big dogs, and that what they've done is they've figured out their carbon intensity score like for their area uh -huh. based on the normal practices, like typical practices for their area. So maybe it's a little bit better than that plus 35, or you know, but it's probably, say it's still that. <clears throat> what they're doing is they're paying just a small premium for anybody that is at that or better. 
So there's no dockage for being worse, but it's just a couple bucks an acre if you are at the average or better based on some of your basic reporting. But it's year one of this program, just getting going. And, uh, but interesting to see that there, are, there is dollars starting to move for this type of initiative. Well, this is exciting. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to share today with our audience? I know we've gotten really deep into a lot of different stuff. Um, uh, it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Um, if people stuck through all of this, kudos to them. This has been uh, there's been a lot of stuff here, but really good info. More on our stuff is continuum.ag is our website. I'm pretty well all over social media and stuff too. Um, and my big thing is I you know need more groups that want to enable this to happen that want to enable these carbon intensity initiatives to be a thing and uh groups that have technologies that can help me to figure out my own carbon intensity score at a more accurate level and uh that way we can scale it to the rest of our network so that's my big uh big program well this has been fantastic mitchell i thank you so much for your time you know any of our audience that's um, interested in continuum ag um, learning more investing has great ideas that may help mitchell and his team and what they're doing feel free to um, uh, reach out to mitchell we'll have um, the email and their website Mm -hmm. in the um, in the uh, the podcast Um, you know this is Mitchell's a disruptor, and he's obviously <laughs> passionate about it. And um, you know, I've been working with him for a number of years, and I'm excited about what he's doing and the big impact that it has on humanity and a, a, the problem that we face with food sustainability for the eight billion people on the mm-hmm. planet, and climate change, and the you know the disruptive technologies are going to help us solve all of these problems. So yeah. Mitchell is just one of the many entrepreneurs that's making a difference in the impact. His goal is to impact a million farmers and a billion acres with regenerative <laughs> av- agriculture. So to me, that's a massive transformational purpose and goal that's driving his moonshot. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is very exciting. And we'll, we'll probably tune back in in about a year to see yeah. how you're doing and what the new developments are. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes. And please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.